we have been preaching through the book of Acts in the New Testament. And it's my joy and privilege to preach to you this morning from Acts chapter 23. And so let's go ahead and open our Bibles and get right into the text this morning. We have a large passage to read through. So Acts chapter 23. And the title of my message this morning is going to be Resurrection Hope. Resurrection Hope. Okay, so I'm going to start reading actually one verse earlier in in, uh, chapter 22, verse 30. Here we go. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why Paul was being accused by the Jews, the tribune unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said, God is going to strike you. You whitewashed wall, are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Paul, now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the, sons, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, 
the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also, provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord God, I ask you this morning, in Jesus' name, would you open our minds and our hearts to receive your word? Would you cause it, Lord, to have its effect? For only you can. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, many of us here are familiar with books by an author named John Piper. He's one of my personal favorites. And I remember distinctly reading a story one time from one of his books called Don't Waste Your Life. And it's at the beginning of the book, and he's talking about his dad and how his dad was an itinerant evangelist. And he used to go around preaching the gospel to these crowds of people. And in one particular instance, in one of the rare occasions that Dr. Piper was actually able to be there when his dad was giving his message, he recounts this time when uh, they were in this church and there was this old, hard man that the church and the community had been praying for for years, praying for this man. And he actually came to the meeting and he heard his dad give the gospel presentation And he recalls that this man came forward at the end of the meeting. And he was praying with his dad. And Dr. Piper saw him as he was receiving the Lord Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And he recalls the man, all he could do was just cry. And all he could say was, I've wasted it. I've wasted it. I've wasted it. You see, having his eyes open to the hope that we have in Jesus. He couldn't help as an old man, but grieve that he had spent so many years 
without that hope, living for himself, angry and bitter, wasting his life. Church, God has given every one of us who are in Christ, every one of us, a glorious hope in Jesus. And that hope should animate us. It should be something that we think about, that we're focused on, and it should impact the way we live our lives today. And I think that this is exactly what we're going to see in our passage this morning in the life of Paul. In particular, we're going to see the present implications of hope in our lives in regards to suffering and courage. And so the main point of my message this morning, I'll put it up on the screen for you, and what I believe that God is calling us to through His Word is this. Suffer righteously and act courageously because of your hope in Jesus. Suffer righteously and act courageously because of your hope in Jesus. Okay, so I want to start off by looking at this concept of hope. I mean, if you think about it, we are hoping creatures, aren't we? I mean, we all find something to latch on to, to look forward to, to help us get through. And some may say that all that Christianity really is, is a crutch. Just a crutch. Oh, they don't believe it's true, but as long as it helps you get through, makes your life a little better, well... That's fine. Believe away. But we all do actually find those little crutches to lean on, don't we? I mean, something to latch on to to help us get through. I mean, whether it's as small or temporal as that expectation maybe of of getting that new thing at a store or even uh, getting something in the mail. I mean, I love to get packages in the mail. Or maybe it's playing that video game and getting to the next level or when the new update comes out. Or maybe it's checking Facebook for that latest post. We're all looking, we, we can easily look to these little things, to, you know, to kind of put our hope in, to help us get through, to make things a little bit easier each day. But then others can take it a step further, right, and go a little deeper, as indeed we should, but they may, they may put it in the wrong place, maybe through being part of a false religion, or being so focused on all of their life goals as what is going to finally one day bring them fulfillment if they can just attain to it. Or maybe even further, we've adopted this worldly kind of existential mentality where our purpose in life is what we make it. So their hope isn't ultimately in, uh, their hope is ultimately in themselves to create a better future for themselves. It's all about them creating their potential. But then finally, worst of all, is those who are hopeless. For them, there is nothing. Now, either it's just all because they're focused on the here and now, not bothering to think about the bigger picture, or because for whatever reason, their outlook is just bleak. I mean, nothing good is going to happen. I mean, what, what does it even matter? And so the Bible comes in and speaks to each one of these ideas about hope and corrects them all. It says to the hopeless, there is great hope in Christ. It says to the people 
putting their hope in all these little bitty things, lift up your eyes and hope in something greater. And it says to the ones who want to create their own hope, it says that God is the one who defines and creates purpose and hope. Quit trying to do something that you aren't capable of doing. What Christianity offers is in no way, in no way equivalent to the little crutches that we find to lean on each day. It is truth and reality and salvation. It offers capital T, true hope that will deliver and can see us through. And so let's take a moment and look at what this passage has to say about our hope in Christ. And that's my first point, point one. A future hope and a present reality. Okay? So focusing our minds back on our passage this morning and giving a little background. Paul has gone to Jerusalem, if you'll recall from the past few sermons. He's submitted himself to what the elders of the Christian church there wanted him to do to get back kind of in the good graces of many of the Jewish Christians by undergoing some purification rituals at the temple. As a result of this, the non-Christian Jews see him and stir up a huge riot to the point where the Roman soldiers have to come in and literally save his life. And right when the Roman tribune is about to have him physically beaten to try to figure out and get some answers about why all this is happening, Paul mentions that he's a Roman citizen. And so the tribune backs off, but he still wants to figure out why these Jews are accusing him. And so in our passage today, the tribune calls together the council of the Jewish leaders and sets Paul before them. Paul says one thing and he gets smacked in the face. Now we're going to come back to that, but I want to look for now at what he says about hope. We read this in verses six and following. Look at it with me. Now, when Paul perceived that one part of this council were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away by force and bring him into the barracks. Okay, so Paul, here, in saying why he is on trial links together the ideas of hope and resurrection. He calls it the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Now, I think that he is speaking in particularly Jewish ways to this Jewish crowd. And he's not mentioning Christ yet, but establishing a foundation. But here's the point. Christian hope is charged with Jewish categories of thought. And the Old Testament and many Jews around this time had a vibrant hope of what would happen at the end of the world. Okay, they called it an eschatological hope. 
And the center of that hope was resurrection at the end of, the, of time when all the righteous dead would be actually physically raised to new life to share in God's new world with him. And so the question for us at this point is this. Is our hope rooted in resurrection? Do we put those two categories together? Because if there is no resurrection, according to the Bible, we have no hope. Sadly, though, we often all have kind of different ideas of hope that aren't tied to the resurrection. And you can see how the differences in Jewish thought on this played out in the dissension of the council. I mean, the Sadducees, on the one hand, didn't believe in any life after death. No resurrection at the end, and not even an intermediate world where maybe, you know, after you die, but before the resurrection, maybe you turn into an angel or a spirit. And so, in a sense, their hope was just in this life. The rewards that came to them in the here and now. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, agreed with Paul and the Old Testament in this regard. They just didn't agree that Jesus had already experienced this end-time eschatological resurrection in the middle of history. And so this is where the Christian view of hope comes in, friends. Paul wasn't simply on trial because of the Pharisaic hope found in the Old Testament. He was on trial, and he's been testifying to over and over again the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Meeting Jesus and having this hope changed Paul's life forever. The question for us is, has it changed our life? If we've met Jesus and know Him as Savior and Lord, has that affected our lives? And the reason why it changed Paul's life and should change ours is found in his words in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Where he says uh, this, addressing these very issues in verses 20 and following. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For, as by a man came death, that would be Adam, by a man also... By a man has all come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You see, our hope for the future is intimately tied up with Jesus and his resurrection, which makes ours possible. I mean, God wants us, church, to have and to be animated by this future hope. Listen, our lives are but a breath. We don't control how long they go. I mean, any one of us 
could walk out of here today and die on the way home. What is, what is your hope for what's going to happen when that day comes? What is your hope for what's going to happen after death? I remember driving down here one time into Florida and there's a road sign that says, Welcome to Florida, mortality rate, 100%. It's a tough reality that we all must face as humans. And so what's your hope for what happens when that day comes? And further, what is your hope for what happens at the end of the age? does, Does it matter to you? Or is here and now all that matters? I mean, our present lives can be so distracting that we forget about our hope. And as that happens, our lives become less and less governed by it. And you know what? When all that matters is the here and now, death becomes more and more scary because this life is simply all there is. And so another question to ask is, even though you may profess faith in Christ and believe this, have you become a functional Sadducee? Where the only thing that matters is this life. I mean, what Christ can do for you now. But you aren't thinking about what's beyond. Is that you? Friends, When we die, our hope is that in that instant, we are going to be with Christ. And even further, when the end of the age comes, even though we do not deserve it, oh, we will be raised physically. And we'll live on a new earth with God, seeing Him, knowing Him forever. Oh, you think this life is long? It's a speck when it comes to eternity. And so that's why Paul was on trial. That's why he continued to press on in the midst of threats and persecution. And that's where the second half of my first point here comes in. Because Not only do we have a glorious future hope, but that hope is also a present reality. The reason why is because our hope is rooted in a person. And that person, Jesus, is alive. The hope that we have in the resurrection in the future has broken into the present in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. I mean, he's not just this idea, but he's a person who's alive right now. So, after all this craziness breaks out in the Jewish council, Paul's taken back to the barracks. Now, just imagine with me, okay? His life has been threatened over and over. I mean, he's finally made it all the way back to Jerusalem, bearing a large sum of money that he's been working to raise for years to aid the struggling church in Jerusalem, only to have people hate him. We don't even get a mention 
about the money that he raised in the book of Acts. We find about it in other letters. He's tried to plead with his former friends and Jewish colleagues on the council only to have them become violent towards him. And now he's back in the barracks alone. Except he's not alone. Read this verse with me in verse 11. Look at it. Set your eyes on it. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I mean, friends, what hope, what peace, what joy that we are able to have now because Jesus is with us today. I mean, this takes it to a whole other level. I mean, we aren't just talking about propositions here, but we're talking about a person, God, Jesus, who stands by us and near us even today to encourage us and strengthen us and to focus our eyes back on him and the hope that he gives us. Oh, friends, do you know this present reality of Jesus being with you? Have you ever had the experience of being frustrated or afraid or depressed or any number of things and open your Bibles or cast yourself on your face in prayer and known a peace and a strengthening that wasn't there before? Friends, that is the Lord Jesus. By His Spirit, standing by you to comfort you and strengthen you. I mean, what more motivation do we need to read our Bibles and pray than that? But sadly, I don't run to Him to find that strength nearly as much as I should. But I'm sure that Paul went to his barracks after this council meeting and threw himself into prayer with his Lord. And the Lord met him. Oh, may we be people who do the same. Friends, we have a glorious, a glorious future hope and a glorious present reality in Jesus. And so now the question for us is that we're confronted with is how should this affect our lives. Now, this is an important question. Listen, I remember when, that when I was dating, first dating my wife, and when we first got married, we'd be in Jackson, Mississippi from time to time. That's where she's from. And I've always so loved and respected my wife because she has a unique love for people and <clears throat> compassion. And so she'd often go to the local soup kitchen there and help prepare and distribute food to give out to the homeless in the city center of Jackson. And she'd also go around afterwards and engage with them after they'd been served food. And every once in a while, I'd tag along with her uh, when I was in town. And I can remember at one time in particular, I was there and we had served the food and we were standing outside afterwards and we were talking to this old man. 
this older man, and, and he was a smart guy. And we were talking to him about Jesus and his need for him. And he gave us this answer. He said, oh, well, if, if he's real and he's going to forgive me if I ask him to, well, then I just won't worry about it until I see him. He'll forgive me then. Friends, his understanding of Jesus was so shallow and his hope so non-existent that it didn't factor at all into how he lived his life now. Now, it was just all a game to him. But church, that's not how it works. You see, because another reality wrapped up with Jesus and the resurrection and the end is this reality of judgment where everyone will be judged by the Lord and there will be no redos. I mean, we can't ask him for forgiveness when we get there, having never asked him or cared about him during this life. He's calling us, church, during this life to trust him, to worship him, to hope in him. And so if you're here this morning and you aren't a Christian, God is calling you to repent now and believe in Jesus. I mean, don't, don't be like this guy, betting that you're going to be good in the end. And don't be like the Sadducees and think you're just going to turn into nothingness when you die and cease to exist. Friend, the holy scriptures of God do not tell us that. Now, you may not believe them, but your not believing them isn't going to make God not exist. You are going to believe them on that day. And you're going to regret that you didn't believe them now. That you didn't give them a closer look. That you didn't really consider who this Jesus was and why he died and how he rose and the salvation and the hope that he offers us. I plead with you, don't reject this unspeakably great gift of God. Don't reject it. Well, church, there are obviously numerous ways that our hope in Jesus should affect our lives today. But along with this passage, we're going to focus on two, okay? Suffering and courage. And so that gets me into point two. Hope and righteous suffering. So throughout Paul's life, we see him suffering persecution and injustice regularly. And the first ten verses of this passage kind of give us an up-close look of how he conducted himself in the midst of people treating him unjustly and undeservedly. In the midst of suffering, we see his righteous life, his respect for the laws of the state, and his respect for God's law. So first, look with me at verse 1 in this chapter. Paul's first words of defense to the council are in defense of his own life in following God. Look at it. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul is saying that his life has been an earnest attempt to obey God, 
not to do wrong and cause problems. He could say that his conscience was clean. I mean, think about that. If we were to be put on trial for our faith and people went looking for things that we had done wrong, even totally unrelated to our faith, just any garbage that they could use to accuse us, would we be able to stand? I mean, could we say in a way similar to Paul, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience. That's an amazing statement. Later on, the tribune, Claudius Lysias, says this in a letter to Felix the governor regarding Paul. Look with me at verse 29 at his letter. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. So over and over, people want to accuse Paul and find something to get him in trouble over. But in the eyes of the law, he's found innocent. And so here's a test question for us, okay? When you're driving down the road and you see a police officer, what's your first reaction? I mean, often, foot on the brake. Then as you pass them, rear view mirror, are they turning around? Okay, foot back on the accelerator. I mean, we don't often react with joy that God has put the governments of the world in place and their laws for our good. We're often fearful. Now look, I understand that all governments are corrupt and some are even horribly abusive, but not counting the exceptions of when they make laws that violate our faith, we, of all people, should be people who are guilty of nothing but doing good obeying God and hoping in Jesus. If that gets us thrown into jail, so be it. Too often, though, we make the excuse that since we uh, think that the government is corrupt in some way or in some areas, well, then we'll just disobey it in every way since it's not worthy of our obedience. But friends, that's not what you see Paul doing here. And the government he was under then wasn't any better than ours today. But then finally, we also see that Paul was submitted to God's law. Look with me at verses 2 through 5. And the high priest Ananias, this is after Paul made his statement of defense, commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet, contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest. And then he quotes from the law. You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. I mean, this is an amazing exchange. Paul is giving his defense, and the so-called high priest orders him to be struck. I mean, and, and you might think that Paul's response to that is a little harsh, but consider this. Paul doesn't fight back or respond in kind. He gets hit and he responds with words. And what he actually does speak is a true and right rebuke in line with God's law. Leviticus 19.15 says this. I'll put it on the screen for you. This should have governed the actions of the high priest. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. 
The law was you're innocent until proven guilty. And here Paul is being ordered to be struck. So ironically, in ordering Paul to be struck, the high priest who was supposed to judge according to the law was breaking God's law. And Paul was the one who was respecting and submitting to God's law. Listen, let's get the nuance of this a little bit. Herman Bavink says uh, concerning this, this quote that I have for you up here. He's referring to Christ's teaching on this. He says, They, Christ's disciples, must not counter an unfair demand of their neighbor with an equally unfair demand of their own. They must not attempt to avenge themselves on their neighbor with like conduct, but rather seek to win him with love, patience, long-suffering, leniency, and a spirit of accommodation. In saying this, however, Christ is absolutely not condemning every instance of defending one's own rights, but the rights of others as well as our own must, according to Christ, be esteemed so highly that they may not in any way be subordinated to personal vindictiveness, hatred, self-interest, to the evil tendencies of the human heart. When we fight for them, that is our rights, we must do so out of love for God and our neighbor. Vengeance and recompense also, according to the Old Testament, are the Lord's own cause. So friends, our hope is that in the end, we will be vindicated. Justice will happen and will be resurrected and all the injustice and wrong will be punished in a way far more justly and rightly than any punishment that we could mete out on our own in the here and now. And so the question for us is, are our lives focused on the hope that we have? Are they pointed outward in gospel witness? I mean, this is the only way that we can ever hope to endure any kind of suffering in a righteous way. It's what gives us purpose in doing so. Otherwise, we're going to be fighting back in lawless ways. But let's bring this down even further, even into our everyday lives, okay? Where maybe we aren't suffering for our faith like Paul or experiencing abuse or mistreatment that are obvious evils. Because the majority of things that you and I experience, frankly, don't amount to the level of being legally defensible. But they're simply relational, aren't they? We have an opportunity, church, to suffer righteously any and every time someone wrongs us in even the slightest way whether they forgot to tell us thank you for something we did or made some comment that they should have kept to themselves or maybe cut us off in traffic. I mean, we live in such a victim mentality world where we're we're, we're just all so self-pitying because of ways people mistreat us or don't meet our expectations. But instead of always making sure that people know where they've messed up or let us down, what if we endured and kept loving them for the sake of the free gospel and because of the hope that we have. Friends, because of the hope that we have, we can endure. God calls us to live and to suffer righteously whether others are doing so or not. Now, many of you know in my own life, that we're currently paying rent on an old apartment that we moved out of recently. 
And we moved out, taking advantage of really a perfect opportunity for us with our growing family that's about to be five people, Lord willing. But also knowing that legally, we're under contract to keep paying the rent on this other place until the contract either expires or someone else re-rented it. And all the while asking God to mercifully provide a new renter. Well, while we were living there, we saw many people leave their leases early like we did without even telling the landlord. I mean, they'll have the moving trucks there on a Sunday when the management is working, just poof, be gone. I don't even know how they find out that they're gone. I mean, what a temptation for us to do the same. No extra cost to us. You can keep the deposit. We're out of here. Done. But friends, we couldn't do it. Out of obedience to God and the laws of Florida, we must fulfill a contract that we've signed no matter what it costs us. And so here we are today, three months later, about to write a rent check tomorrow. I don't want to. But trusting that though we are losing money, it's far better than losing our reputation. Far better than breaking God's and man's laws. Far better than being open to legitimate charges of guilt for breaking a lease. And far better in our witness to those landlords and anyone else who's aware of the situation. Now listen closely. That's not to exalt ourselves. Oh, if you only knew we were so weak in making that decision. We needed help to follow God with a clean conscience. And you know what? Even if that apartment complex was taking advantage of us and intentionally not renting our apartment out so they could just get all of our money, we would need help to suffer righteously and to continue to uphold our side of the bargain, no matter what, and to respond in a way that loved them and was in obedience to God's laws and state law. Friends, it was and it still is not an easy decision because we don't want to lose our money. But God, in His sovereign wisdom, hasn't provided a renter yet. And so we, we fight every time that we have to write that check to remember our hope in Him and to act righteously in a desire to glorify God and to have a clean conscience before Him and others. But friends, to do that and to do all these other things, we not only need hope, but we need courage. And that's my last point for us, okay? Hope and acting courageously. So look again with me at verse 11 where Jesus stood by Paul. What did he say to him? He said this, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I mean, listen, Paul was facing the lawlessness of the Jewish leaders and was about to experience even more chaos. And Jesus stands by him and calls him to take courage. And he was going to need it because on the very next day, we see this crazy group of 40 non-Christian Jews commit to kill him. And they don't just say, well, you know, if we see him, you know, we, we might we might try to hurt him. No. And this is repeated three times for emphasis. They bind themselves by an oath to neither eat nor drink until they have killed Paul. There's a time limit on this thing. So I don't know about you, but I probably won't be making too many vows like that in my lifetime. I mean, they were serious. And how would you feel if you were in Paul's position? 
when you're at the mercy of the Roman government, who you couldn't fully trust, and then finding out that 40 wicked men had so committed themselves to killing you. I mean, you'd be needing some courage, all right. And so did Paul. He also needed it because the way that he was going to be able to share the gospel in Rome was going to be through being in prison and on trial. I mean, he's going to be given the opportunity to witness to some of the highest strata of Roman society. But he was going to witness to the gospel through being on trial. Now, think about that. It's not exactly the way that you or I might choose to bring the gospel, right? I mean, I'd rather my life not be on the line if I say something wrong. You know, maybe, maybe we could just get together over a cup of coffee or something like that. Friends, Paul needed to take courage and remember his hope and to remember who was by him even then. And so the question for us is, where do we, where do you Need courage, dear friend. Where is God calling you to act courageously? Following God in this world takes courage, and it will increasingly do so. Friends, as I mentioned before, it takes courage to actually obey Him, to live and suffer righteously, to respect others and obey the law of our country when so many others don't. It takes courage. Because we can really save ourselves a lot of time and energy and money or trouble by cutting corners. It also takes courage to introduce ourselves to a new person. It takes courage to let other people in on the deepest parts of our lives. It takes courage to repent and let others know that we aren't perfect and ask for their prayers, their help, their encouragement. It takes courage to speak an encouraging word to others in a world where people just don't talk like that. It takes courage to love people who don't love us. It takes courage to speak the gospel to one another, to our family, to our neighbors in the world. It takes courage to keep ministering and serving in the face of opposition from others, from Satan, the world, or the flesh. Oh, friends, God is calling us to be a courageous people. Jesus stands with us by His Spirit to richly supply all the courage we could ever need. Will we look to Him for that courage? Because we can't muster it up alone, not for long. I mean, friends, what can motivate and empower us to do such things? Who is sufficient? Only God and the hope He gives us in Jesus. So to conclude, because of Jesus, we have a glorious future hope of being raised from the dead and living with God forever. We also have a glorious present reality of being able to walk with the living Lord Jesus today. And boy, do we need that future hope and present reality, don't we? And we need it especially, as I've mentioned, in regards to suffering righteously. That's not natural and acting courageously in an age of passivity, tolerance, and lawlessness. Friends, when our lives are focused on the hope we have in the life to come, and we are walking with Jesus, even now, we will have what it takes to suffer righteously and live courageously. And you know what? We'll be able to say in the end that we have not wasted it. 
That's what I want to be able to say. Amen? God has given us all we need in Jesus, church. Let me pray for us as the worship team comes back up and leads us in singing, You Are Our Hope. Lord God, Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you would open our eyes to the great hope we have in Jesus, Lord. Oh God, thank you, thank you, thank you for the undeserved grace you have shown us in sending Jesus to die and to rise on our behalf. Oh God, thank you that with that, for the glorious hope you give us at every stage of life. Thank you, Jesus, oh God, that you stand with us and by us even now. Please, God, help us to look to you. Would you empower us, Lord God, to be people who live our lives for the sake of your gospel. Not for our own rights, but for your glory. To suffer righteously for the sake of pointing others to Jesus. Would you give us the power to act courageously, Lord God? In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Let's sing. Amen.